Lewis and Plato are trying to say to us, no, you need to step outside and look at yourself and you need to measure yourself, not against your neighbor, but measure yourself against Christ. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so that's why what we seek to do is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our chaotic world so that you can face the chaos and confusion of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. I'm really excited to bring this episode to you today. I got to have a really interesting, fun, and engaging conversation with a guy named Dr. Louis Marcos. Uh, Dr. Marcos just came out with a brand new book called From Plato to Christ, How Platonic Thought Shaped the Christian Faith. And we got to talk about a wide range of issues on uh, about Plato, Greek philosophy, uh, and obviously how that influenced the Christian faith. We got to talk about uh, the differences between general revelation, special revelation, and how we integrate the two into a Christian worldview. It was a lot, a lot of fun. And Dr. Marcos is a really uh, interesting person that was just a blast to talk to. Uh, Louis Marcos has a PhD from the University of Michigan. He is a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. He is the author of many books, including Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes, Ancient Voices, An Insider's Look at Classical Greece, From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics, Atheism on Trial, Refuting the Modern Arguments Against God on the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue in Tolkien and Lewis, and Restoring Beauty, The Good, The True, and The Beautiful in the Writings of C.S. Lewis. Before we get into the episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to the show if you have not yet already. Subscribe if you're watching on YouTube or subscribe if you are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever else. And also, if you would help us out, if you enjoyed uh, this episode or other content that we've put out, if you would leave us a, a rating and review, it helps other people find the show and find the resources that we're putting out there. Uh, if you would like this video on YouTube, leave us a comment to let us know what you thought. If you, have any, if you have any questions or feedback, we always appreciate that and interact with it as much as we can. It helps us out and it makes sure that you get, and by subscribe, make sure that you get any future content that we have automatically sent to your notifications or in your podcast or YouTube homepage. Uh, well, without any further delay, I am excited to bring you guys this conversation that I got to have with Dr. Lewis Marcos. Dr. Marcos, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm excited to have you on. It's uh, going to be a great conversation today. I've been looking forward to having it with you. Before we talk about your book, which is From Plato to Christ, I, uh, I was telling you before we started, I, I've been excited about this one. Uh, before we jump into it, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. We got to hear your bio, but uh, just tell, tell us about you, where you're from, uh, a little bit of your history, and, uh, and what you do now, what it, what it means to uh, be a professor of humanities. Great. Now, my name's Lou Marcos. I'm a professor of English. Lou. As it okay. is here at HBU, and I've just finished teaching 30 years. So, Aaron, you can tell I started teaching when I was 17, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in New Jersey. I'm a Yankee. I went to school at Colgate, upstate New York, and University of Michigan. So about the first half of my life was in the north, and the second half of my life has been down here in Texas. I consider myself a Texan. I love Houston. Uh, a very interesting thing about me, though, vis-a-vis -vis this book, is that I am Greek. All four of my grandparents were born in Greece. 
and emigrated to America about 1930. And I've been in a Greek phase. I published another book called The Myth Made Fact, reading Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes, and another book about ancient voices. So I've been definitely in a Greco-Roman kick here. So when I look at Plato, this is not only my ancestor in the sense that I'm a Western civilization man, but I'm also a Greek. So maybe I'm related to him. I don't know. Uh, I've always had a passion. I knew in high school I wanted to teach, uh, uh, be a professor in English. And my real passion, you can probably guess this, is what they call bringing Athens and Jerusalem together, getting our Judeo-Christian legacy and our Greco-Roman legacy and bringing it together and showing, especially my fellow Christians, that we can learn a great deal from the pre-Christian pagan writers, that there is actually wisdom there. It is not the direct revelation of God, but there is wisdom there that we can learn from and sort of test it against the touchstone of the Bible and of Christ. But I'm passionate to learn all the wisdom I can from all the great thinkers, and then, of course, doing it ultimately under the umbrella of Christ. And Plato, there is no greater philosopher. Uh, and so Plato has always been an influence right back to high school in my life. Awesome. Wonderful. Uh, so a, a Greek Texan then. I'm. Uh, so you're in, have you been in Houston yes, the whole time that you've been in the South? I've been here for 30 years. I'm 50, okay. so 27 years a Yankee, 30 years a Texan. So now I'm, I'm past the halfway point and I, yeah. I you know, both grew up and, and, you know, lived in Houston uh, and it's really a great place. A little bit it hot, is. okay, but I like that better than the cold. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'm actually from Beaumont. I was born in Beaumont, Texas. Oh, look so, at that. Yeah, same same right neighborhood. On the edge there. of Louisiana, there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So, so yeah. So the book is from Plato to Christ. Before we get into the the argument of the book, the purpose of the book, uh, let's talk about about the man Plato. I'm sure that anyone listening to this has heard the name before referenced in, in whatever context. Uh, but but exactly who was he, right? Beyond just the, the household name or, or maybe right. what people know from popular culture, who was Plato? What were his major contributions to philosophy? Why is it that, in your opinion, he was the greatest of the Greek philosophers? Now, we start with Socrates, right? Socrates you know, was born and died basically in the 5th century BC. He died in 399. So he's fully 5th century. His greatest student was Plato. And Plato sort of straddles the 5th century and the 4th century BC. And then Plato's great pupil was Aristotle, who was born and died in the 4th century BC. So Plato's right in the middle. And really, Socrates, there there are what we call pre-Socratic philosophers, and we have bits and pieces of their work, mostly filtered through Plato or Aristotle. But in some ways, philosophy really begins with Socrates. Socrates, of course, never wrote anything down. But of course, Jesus never wrote anything down. Socrates never wrote anything down. What we know about Socrates, well, what was written down by Plato. Now, we have other attestation. We've got uh, Xenophon. We've got Aristotle. I mean, we know he's a historical figure. But he didn't write anything down himself. It was Plato that wrote it down. Now, for me, Socrates really invents mythology, excuse me, philosophy, by mixing together metaphysics and ethics. Because mm. often you have the people that are interested in the other world and metaphysical, philosophical ideas. Then you have other people that are into ethics, but they often don't overlap. With Socrates, the two come together to create a true philosophy. Now, as I read the situation, and I discuss this in my book, 
I believe that Socrates kicked off philosophy by asking about definitions. How do you define goodness, truth, beauty, courage, justice, all of that? How do you define them? But Socrates is the beginning. Socrates is frustrating because he doesn't give us a whole lot of positive definitions of these things. I believe that Socrates did the necessary groundwork of first demolishing what is not goodness, truth, and beauty. So if you read the early dialogues of Plato, the ones that I believe are very, very Socratic, that are probably true to him, those early ones are kind of frustrating because we begin by saying, what is courage? And then Socrates, by using the Socratic method of question and answer, he systematically demolishes all of the other definitions people come up with. But then he rarely offers his own definition. Some people know his motto was, well, I don't really know, but because I know I don't know, that's why I'm the wisest of all men. But (laughs) that groundwork, right? I can't see truth with a capital T unless I've washed away all those little truths with little t's. So Socrates is doing... So if you only read Socrates, you might say, oh my God, this guy's a postmodern deconstructionist. But no, mm. he, he does deconstruct, but he only breaks down so we can get to what is truly true and really real. But from the way I read it, it's really Plato who is moving beyond the deconstructive phase to moving to what you might call the reconstructive phase and seeking after what is true. So we've got the early uh, dialogues that, that again, but it's the middle dialogues when Plato comes into his own. The greatest dialogues are the Republic, the Timaeus, the Phaedrus, the Phaedo, the Gorgias. Uh, These are the really, really great middle dialogues. He's got some late ones that are good too. But in the middle dialogues, Socrates is always his speaker, his mouthpiece. But it seems clear to me that whenever the dialogues move into the positive phase and say, this is what justice is, like he does in the Republic, we're moving into Plato. And Plato is, again, very, very metaphysical. He's most famous for his theory of the forms. That's the idea that on this earth, there's all sorts of different kinds of chairs. They're different in shape. They're different in size. They're different in color. They're different in material. But we all recognize that they are a chair because all of those small C chairs are participating in chair with a capital C, the idea of the chair, the form of the chair, chairness. And that's not only true for inanimate objects, that's true for things like goodness, truth, and beauty. And Plato is trying to turn our eyes away from the imitations, the things of our world, which are you know, a little bit shadowy, and try to get us to meditate on the absolute forms of things. And people today, even a lot of evangelical Christians, they don't like Plato, because even though they Christians, they're kind of embarrassed by absolute truth or hierarchy or things that are true for all times and all cultures. Even I mean, we, It's almost like we've slipped into a kind of relativism and we're uncomfortable making truth claims. And so I've seen many, uh, like I said, evangelicals like myself who are suspicious of Plato. And they say they're suspicious because he's a pagan. 
But I think they're suspicious because he forces our modern relativistic age to deal with the fact that there is real truth out there. And although we may not always be able to apprehend it, it's still there. Mm. So I actually believe that we need Plato more than ever today to center us again. And when I say us, I really mean especially Christians and especially evangelicals, what you would call a low Protestant. Uh, We need to learn again that there are standards, that there is hierarchy, that there's a good kind of elitism that tries to seek the ideal or the form. Mm. Yeah, explain a little bit more what his what his uh, contribution is in terms of hierarchy, because I think that I think you're you repeated that one a few times. So I think that right. that's really the one that you're saying it Christians is. have a problem with today. Sticks in, in the yeah, and, and, I, and right. I agree. I think that's hierarchy is a dirty word for not just Christians, but a lot of people today. And, and so, so what is what is Plato's contribution there? Expand on that one a little bit. Let me let me start with a roundabout kind of answer here by saying. As a C.S. Lewis scholar, I get to write for all different journals, which I'm so happy, all different denominations, whatnot. And I'm pretty traditional, so I tend to say St. Paul and St. Augustine. And I started to notice about five or ten years ago that whenever it was an Anglican or you know, or Catholic, they left it. But whenever it was an evangelical, they would always change it to Paul the Apostle or Augustine of Hippo. And we're now, it is true, I'm a Baptist, it is true that all believers are saints, Right. But I don't think their problem is really theological. They may think it's theological, but their real problem is, oh, you're a saint? You think you're better than I am? Hey, folks, we all know that there are certain athletes that are better than others and certain musicians that are better than others, but we get all bent out of shape if we hear someone say, that guy's more spiritual than you. And of course, it's all ironic because Baptists do have saints. We call them Wycliffe Bible translators, okay? So we do know that there are people. So that's a roundabout way to say that we're almost embarrassed by this idea of spiritual levels, that there are certain people that are higher spiritually than we are. Now, salvation is by faith. It's by grace through faith, okay? Mm -hmm. We're saved by our works. But we can grow spiritually and move closer. And in Plato, we need to move beyond the shifting shadows of the world that often delude us, and we're trying to find what is always true, what is constant, what does not shake, when all that can be shaken is shaken, what cannot be shaken remains. And we're moving forward to that. And whether or not there's actual rankings in heaven, I don't know. But I do believe that maybe some people in heaven will be able to apprehend more of the triune God than others, perhaps. Mm. But that there, there is a continuity that we're moving upward towards something. And now, you know, we do have the D- Dallas Willard and, and you know, the, the, that sort of movement for spiritual formation. I think that's good. But but Plato would remind us that, you know, there, there are people that, that are closer and it does take effort. Now, this is not a works religion, but it means exercising the mind, trying to move beyond our narrow prejudices and our narrow moment and try to find out something that is true for always. And of course, C.S. Lewis did that. He was a Christian Platonist or a Platonic Christian, if you want to put it, um, that were moving. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Dante was very much influenced by Plato. St. Augustine was very much you know, influenced by Plato. And I talk about a lot of other people in my book. Mm-hmm. But we're moving closer and closer. And we've got to stop. You know, again, look, 
I understand why Baptists get a little concerned with Pentecostals, right? And if their concern were really theological, like you're speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter. But again, a lot of them is, oh, you think you're more spiritual than me because you could speak in tongues? If that was a real gift, God would give it to me. You see what I'm getting at here, Aaron? What I'm yeah. saying is sometimes we hide behind theology when our problem is really sort of psychological. Uh, mm. Look, we all know there's hierarchy. Really, Aaron, would you, but you live where now? Lafayette, Louisiana. Oh, Louisiana. Okay. Yeah. I mean, would you buy a ticket to the Louisiana Symphony, Symphony if you knew that the Louisiana Symphony chose on the basis of egalitarian principles and let everybody participate? Would you buy a season pass to football, which is very expensive, if anybody that wanted to join could join? Actually, that's a bad analogy because that's what the Houston Texans are. I think they accept anybody. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, like I said, we, we understand uh-huh. this is crazy in most other endeavors, mm-hmm. but well, spiritually, I don't know, we get bent out of shape. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've lost our confidence that there are things that are true, that there's such a thing as absolute truth. You know, we're, 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 we're a little bit uneasy about some guy in the pulpit telling us truth now, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's our problem, okay? And it's weird that a pagan writer who lived about 400 years before Christ may be one of the people that helps get us back in line. Yeah. <laughs> clarity again yeah yeah absolutely yeah interesting that, that, that's something that we could sit on for a while but, but but let's go back to the book so uh so from plato to christ so what are some of the um semblances of christian thought that you see in plato's writings in other words what are some of the uh the contributions that plato made and uh in the platonic writers uh the neoplatonists leading up to uh, the New Testament era and the era, and then uh, Augustine. What are some of the semblances of Christian thought that you see as leading to uh, their fulfillment or their correction, whatever it might be, in uh, in Christianity? Good. Well, and we'll start with, with something right out of the Bible. Okay, in Hebrews, right, the author of Hebrews says that basically the temple on the earth is just a shadow of the real temple in the throne room of God. Now, in no way am I saying the writer of Hebrews is quoting Plato in any way. Maybe he doesn't even know Plato, probably doesn't know Plato. But what I'm saying is Plato must have got something a little bit right, that that a lot of the things in this world point towards a higher and greater and fuller and richer reality. Now, as Christians, we are going to have a much higher view of the world and the flesh than Plato did, although that low view of the flesh is really more Neoplatonic than Plato. I think we're a little bit too hard on Plato if you really read him carefully. But it is still true that Plato, because he lacked the special revelation of the Bible, especially Genesis, he still tended to think that our that our body was a little bit of a prison house to the soul, right? But how many American Christians think that, right? Yeah. Is bad, soul is good. How many of them? I love it's a wonderful life, but how many Christians think we die and we become angels in heaven? So mm-hmm. it's not just Plato's problem. You know, we often have a problem. We're embarrassed by the body, by the physical. But still, even though our world is not an illusion, compared to the thundering reality of heaven, our world is like a shadow. But if, mm-hmm. if put it in perspective, we have to understand that there's greater and greater reality as we're moving up. And Plato teaches us to turn our eyes upon those things. He also 
teaches us to seek after, again, not just man-made justice, but what are the true standards of justice? And in a moment that is almost like a pagan prophecy, it kind of gives you goosebumps when you read it. Okay, in the Republic, we're trying to define justice. And of course, Plato wants us to know that justice is in the end better than injustice. And one of his pupils, Glaucon, agrees with Plato, but he wants to play devil's advocate. He wants to force Plato to answer the really, really difficult question, right? And he said, let's take two scenarios, the perfectly unjust man and the perfectly just man. The perfectly unjust man actually does whatever he wants, but he pretends and has a veneer of justice, but he actually breaks all the rules and does all these things, and yet this guy succeeds. Or to put it in the language of the Old Testament, why do the ways of sinners prosper? That's Mm -hmm. the odyssey of the book of Habakkuk, right? So, okay, let's take that perfectly unjust man, but then there's a perfectly just man. Everything he does is just, but everybody thinks he is unjust. They will turn against him, they will imprison him, they will beat him, and they will hang him on a spike. Wow, that's what he says. It's like a foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, Plato almost surely has in mind Socrates, who did good for Athens, but was eventually charged with, you know, uh, basically teaching false gods and corrupting the youth and forced to drink hemlock and die. So, yeah, he probably has Socrates in mind, but it's almost like he's making a pagan prophecy without knowing it, that the true perfect man, when the perfectly just man comes into the world, what Paul will call the second Adam, the last Adam, what happens to him? People turn against him. They call him a blasphemer. They arrest him. He is condemned by his own people, the Sanhedrin, turned over to the Romans where he is beaten. And now when Plato said on a pole, he means impaled on a pole, but here Mm -hmm. crucified on a pole. So what's going on? It's like Plato's already understanding a, a, a deeper nature that things are not always what they appear. And Jesus told his followers, you will be persecuted, right? And people will turn against you. So people read that and they were just amazed. What was Plato doing? It's like Plato was preparing the Greco-Roman world for the coming of Christ, the true just man. Hmm. Interesting. I've, I've heard some people say, I don't know if this is a serious argument, but I wonder if you've heard it before and what you think about it. I've heard some people say that, uh, that there's, there's a theory that Plato had access to or was aware of the Pentateuch or the, the, the writings of Moses, maybe somewhat familiar with the Jewish law. Are, have you, are you familiar with that? And even some of the earliest apologists like Justin Martyr, some of them suggested that. But part of what they were doing is they were trying to convince their highly educated pagan audience that the Jews are even older. Okay. That, <laughs> and, you know, because Plato's only 400 years, 350 years before their time, where Moses. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at over a thousand. You can decide when you think Moses is twelve hundred or fifteen hundred. I go yeah. for the date, but but the or earlier did I mean? But the got to think backwards. BC. <laughs> the uh, but but I don't think any of them like literally thought Plato was you know cribbing from. Mm. That. There there are also some people that think 
that um, that uh, the Magi must have got some secret writings from Daniel. Okay, hmm. some possibility, but I think the people that say that are people that say they believe in total depravity, but really believe in utter depravity. And they don't think that a pagan would come up with such wisdom. Well, come on. What did Jesus say about the uh, centurion? I have not seen faith like this amongst my own people. What yeah. about, uh, what about um, uh, Cornelius in Acts 10, right? I mean, I, I, like I said, sometimes we're a little too crazy. Look, there's such a thing as general revelation, even Calvin begins his institutes by talking about general revelation. That doesn't mean Plato has come up with knowledge that will save him. It is not salvific, but using the general revelation of creation, conscience, reason, he is able to move towards things that are true. Now, again, he doesn't have all the answers. He cannot be saved apart from Christ. But I think we try too hard sometimes to say, Oh, they had secret wisdom from Moses or something like that. Yeah, but you know, it's it, it's in the air. It's possible. Um, Virgil's even more amazing in the historical. The, I, I wrote another book called "From Achilles to Christ" that talks about Virgil. Uh, people say, "Oh, he must have read Genesis." I, I don't think so. He could have. I mean, theoretically, he could have. Um, I think it would have been harder for Plato because in Plato's day. Uh, the Pentateuch had not yet been translated into Hebrew. That, that's going to it's going to be like 150 years later. That's mm. you got to get from Plato to Aristotle to Alexander the Great to building Alexandria. So, and that I makes think sense. Yeah. Plato knew Hebrew, okay? But again, may, maybe some ideas trickled through. But yeah. when you follow the logic of Plato, again, you know, a lot of people don't like when when, when translators put capital G in Plato, and of course he doesn't know Yahweh, but I think Plato's moving towards an understanding of monotheism because he understands if there is a God, that God must be the standard of goodness and must ultimately be outside. The gods of Homer, I mean, there's no way you can base any kind of moral or ethical behavior upon the gods of Homer. Mm-hmm. And he often had a problem with Homer, even though he loved Homer and clearly had most of it memorized. That's why he always quotes Homer and gets it wrong because he's quoting from memory. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I want to get into some of the ways that some of the specific ways and connections that that Plato influenced uh, Christian theologians. Uh, before we get that get into that, let, let's go ahead and, and keep going into this topic a little bit deeper on the issue of uh, general revelation and some of the pushback people might have to it, and so on. You know, you you said earlier in this uh, in the show that one of the callings on your ministry has been to try to bring together Athens and Jerusalem. There's some people, uh, especially Cornelius Van Til and his students, who would say, mm-hmm. absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Athens and Jerusalem have nothing to do with one another. Presuppositionalism. Yeah, yeah. So how do you respond to the arguments of presuppositionalists uh, uh, I mean, with, the amazing in this context? Thing, the amazing thing is that the first great missionary, Paul, uses this kind of an apologetic at Mars Hill or the Areopagus. And that's why so many apologetics groups and other things go by the name of Mars Hill. Because, all right, Paul goes to Athens. It's Acts chapter 17, second half of Acts chapter 17. And he looks around and his heart hurts, right? Because he sees idols to everything, right? Somebody once said, it's easier to find a God than a man in Athens, right? Because they were full of idols everywhere. But then Paul noticed that there was a idol or a temple that said to an unknown God. And then 
Aaron, because he had listened to our podcast, Paul knew what to do. He went and called a meeting and wanted to meet with the Areopagus. Now, in the days of Plato, the Areopagus was a political body. By the time we get to, to uh, Paul in the first century AD, they're more of a philosophical, theological group of Stoics and Epicureans trying to decide whether or not to allow new ideas into the city. This was a great college town, Athens. And he spoke to them and he said, men of Athens, which is the way Socrates would often begin his speeches. He says, I can see in all way that you are a religious people, for I see that you have temples. He didn't say idols. He's building a bridge. I see you have temples to all gods. You even have a temple to an unknown god. And then Paul speaks the words that I believe the entire Greco-Roman world was waiting to hear. He said, now, therefore, what you have worshipped in ignorance, I will proclaim to you as known. And then he goes on to say that the God who created the universe doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands, but out of one man, he created all races of men. He set their time and spaces and spread them out though, and so that they might reach after him and grope after him though he is not from, far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As your own poets, your own pagan poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, some people misunderstand that Paul is quoting two different pagan poets. One poet whose name was Epimenides said, in him we live and move and have our being. Another poet called Aratus said, we are his offspring. Now, the he and his in the original are Zeus, but it's as if Plato is saying, I'm sorry, as if Paul is saying, without knowing it, they are speaking of God, that there is actual truth. And now I'm going to point you forward to the man who God chose to judge the world, and he gave proof of it by raising him from the dead. Now, as he said that, some of them were too platonic, were like, whoa, 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 raising from the dead? We want to get rid of our body. Why do we want our body back? That's crazy. Okay, that, that, That's the idea that's kind of crazy to the Greeks. It was also crazy to the Jews because the Jews thought that the resurrection was at the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And it is, ultimately. But Jesus is the resurrection now. I am the resurrection and the life. So Paul is practicing this kind of thing. He obviously thinks that there is actual wisdom and knowledge in those poems. And he is trying to build a bridge, what we call classical apologetics, to, just like C.S. Lewis did in Mere Christianity. He yep. started with what he called the Tao, the moral ethical code that we all have access to, whatever our cultural or religious background is. Yeah. And so whenever we're um, interacting with various thinkers, writers who are working with general revelation, whether that be Plato in Athens or whoever else, uh, whenever we're trying to bring together Athens and Jerusalem, I guess I'm trying to say, what are what are the rules of the game, right? What are the criteria that we use for evaluating uh, something, someone's ideas as, is this general revelation or is this uh, a thought set up against Christ? Good. And, how, how, how do we bring them together I mean, without just becoming Athenians? Yeah, because uh, first of all, whenever you find a link in Greek mythology, and I've written another book, The Myth Made Fact, again, the book came out at the same time, Whenever you make a link between the two and, and you see something there that reflects the Bible, there's always four ways to read it. One way is to say it's a complete coincidence. But, you know, Aaron, we wouldn't be doing this podcast if we thought it was always a coincidence, right? We, we're wanting to understand. So there's three basic ways. One way is to say it is a demonic deception. And there are cases where that may be the case, right? That's one way of saying it. 
The other way is the more theologically liberal way of saying, well, that just shows that Christianity is just an advanced myth, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That's Christ of culture. If you mm-hmm. spoke uh, Christ and culture, uh, Niebuhr. And to say that, no, but the other one is to say, no, it, it is generally preparing the way, but the full revelation doesn't come until Jesus. I like to say it this way, Aaron. Christianity is not the only truth. Now, that's an odd thing for a Baptist to say, but I'm going to say it again. Christianity is not the only truth, but it is the only complete truth. If you say Christ is the only truth, it's almost like you're dropping a wall down and everything outside is a lie. And, and sometimes the planting of people, you know, the, 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 I mean, the uh, uh, Cornelius Van Til can maybe almost go to that extreme. I don't think they really mean to, but it's like everything outside is falseness. And, you know, even even Luther, when his blood is up, you ever read the bondage of the will? He's got his gloves on and he's going at it, right? And he says, apart from grace, there is only wrath. Apart from light, only darkness. Apart from the way, only error. Now, to a certain extent, of course, that's true. Salvation is only in Christ. But I think he pushes it too far. And anyway, he was a great uh, classical scholar, Luther, anyway. If you read Bonjour the Will, he quotes the classics like two dozen times. But anyway, um, sometimes we push it too hard, so we're actually bordering on utter depravity. The idea that our idea of black is God's white, God's white is our... I mean, no, we are still made in God's image. The imago Dei remains. We're fallen and cannot save ourselves. But we still can arrive at truths through the reason that God has given us. He wants, you know, why are we without excuse in Romans chapter 1? We're without excuse because God's power and majesty is written in nature. That's general revelation. It's in creation. Uh, What does it say in Romans 2? The, The pagans who are without the law are a law unto themselves, for the law has been written upon their heart. It's the word we call conscience today. So, it, it, it is there. So, but we do have to be careful. Okay, we, we, we have to, what we have to avoid is what's called syncretism. So the ancient pagans, they would have a shrine to Zeus, whatever, Zeus, Osiris, Ammon, or something like that, right? That doesn't happen. We don't do that. None of the early church fathers ever spoke in the language of Zeus because Zeus was too corrupted a concept. But what they borrowed were deeper concepts like the word logos, the mm-hmm. word, and the word theos for God. That was okay. That wasn't corrupted. It wasn't like Zeus. There were ideas there that they could borrow to find a philosophical language in which to explain the fuller Christian revelation. If this helps, maybe Plato saw very dimly in a dirty mirror but I believe he saw something. But thank God we have the Bible and also Christ, the Bible, and the creeds of the church as our touchstone to measure against. So we do need to be careful. We do need to discern the spirits. But we need to understand that there are truths there that were arrived at. And you know, I wrote a book called From Plato to Christ. I want one of my Chinese students to write a book called From Confucius to Christ and find some actual bits and pieces of truth there, but mm-hmm. need to be tested against the Bible. Yeah. Didn't Augustine compare it to how the uh, the children of Israel, whenever they Spoiling were freed, the 
Yes, yep. exactly. They took the gold from the Egyptians as they were freed from their slavery. And this is similar to how we, with the Christian worldview, can take truth uh, that is revealed to uh, through general revelation right. to other people and cultures they, and so they, on. You know, another image that was used sometimes is kind of a weird image, but uh, okay, usually you know you're not supposed to marry foreign brides, the, the Jews, right? Because they always get corrupted by marrying Canaanite brides and stuff. But there is one provision if you know a Philistine or whatever you know truly wants to become, you know, whatever, a worshiper of Yahweh, a Jew, there was a way to take her in and you would shave off all of her hair and cut all of her fingernails. And then when it grew back, you could marry her. And that was all used by Augustine, particularly that in origin as a metaphor for we take the pagan classics. We do need to purify them a little bit, right? Shave off the the part that is gross, whatever that is, and then let it grow back. But there's a way of looking at and learning from them and taking those lessons. And also they, they inspire us. Somebody like Plato inspires us to live a better life, inspires us to turn away from the false and seek the true. And so some of them, you read the really, when I say really early, I mean, before Nicaea, uh, Justin Martyr and these other people, Thanagoras, they often look to Socrates as a role model, as a martyr for truth. Now, obviously, Socrates didn't know the fullness of the revelation, but in a way, he was killed for mono. He's moving to monotheism, and they're killing him for for uh, teaching foreign gods and corrupting the youth. When that was the last thing that he was doing, it's ironic. Jesus gets gets killed for being a blasphemer when he's the one who's actually telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they recognize that irony in someone like Socrates, and they often held him up as a role model of someone who gave all for the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as an excellent illustration to their own culture of, uh, of, uh, of the kind of person that Jesus was, you know, they could look, point to someone like Socrates and say, you know, just as we witnessed in him and we admire him so much more so, to an infinite degree right. more so, uh, is the true savior of mankind. Right, who gave you know, himself they, up for us. They, some of those early fathers were like, look at these pagans are outshining you. Look what they did. Look at the sacrifice they made to learn. And you're not even as good as the pagans. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I, I, an example of that, a very modern example, might be if you're like, hey, those Muslims pray five times a day, Christian. How many times do you pray? Okay. Yeah. I still believe that Jesus is the son of God. He's not just a prophet, right? He's more than that. We don't agree with a lot of Muslim theology, but they can spur us on, okay? Mm-hmm. My daughter would have to wear a, a thing over her head. Of course, now she has to wear something over her face. But but, but I would like her to be modest, right? Yeah. I think learn something. Uh, immodest Christians can learn something from modest Muslims, right? Even if we don't agree of the necessity of that, we can mm-hmm. actually learn from it, right? Um, and, 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 uh, and, and again, Plato... They look. They look to Plato, and and you know, it's really fun. people always make fun of Plato. This idea of the philosopher king. Well, guess what? Throughout most of the Middle Ages, they took Plato seriously because the real leader of society for at least eight hundred of those years, the real leader was not the Holy Roman Emperor. The real leader was the bishop, the priest, the monk, the friar. Those were the leaders of society. And who are they? They were people who gave over half their life to meditation and contemplation. 
not of the forms, but of the triune God. But mm-hmm. for a long time, we believe that the leaders of society should not be the richest or the strongest, but the one who are the most devoted to truth. Now, again, we're Christians, so mm-hmm. our truth is personal, but still, it's truth. Yeah. Yeah, didn't this, this might be a little off topic? Didn't uh, Augustine adopt that philosopher king idea into his political theology? Really, in many ways, they, they saw that. You you can see it even in Erasmus, as far as Erasmus, who's right on the cusp of, well, it's the beginning of the Renaissance. Uh, so, so yeah, there, there is, you know, we, we can learn from the one. See, what Plato's giving us, okay, a, a lot of people kind of misunderstand this. The, the whole point of the Republic is really not to create a perfect utopia. The whole point of the Republic is what is justice? And what he means by that is, what is the justice in the soul that we can't see, smell, taste, or touch? The trouble is, how can you see the soul? And so what they decided to do is, okay, let's take the microcosm of the human soul and blow it up onto the macrocosm of an entire state or republic. Then let's try to find justice in that republic. And once we do it, we can work our way back to the soul, because that's what the whole exercise is about. And he speaks of our soul as being tripartite. It's got a rational part. It's got an appetitive part. In other words, appetite. I want, I want, you know. And then it's got a spirited part. Uh, it's the head, the belly, and the chest, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks about in The Abolition of Man. And there is a war, psychomachia, a psyche war, a war in there. And it's important to fight that war. We talk about the angel and the devil on our shoulder. But you know what? We're here to resist temptation, not to give into it all the time. We're here in, in a struggle, listening to the better angels of our nature, right, as Abraham Lincoln said. Um, so one of the things we get from Plato, too, is the, the, the need to participate in that wrestling and that growth and finding the true balance and harmony that will lift you to a higher vision, so you're no longer fooled by the shifting shadows of this world. Another way of putting that, you're no longer fooled by the shifting shadows of social media that pull us in this direction and that direction, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, Maybe we wouldn't be fighting with each other all the time if we could get back to an understanding of how to argue rationally and logically and not allowing ourselves to be controlled by images and images that are changing constantly, right? Very, very difficult. What is politically correct today may be politically incorrect, like literally one week from now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, everybody's being canceled now, right? When 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 R.K. Rowling is canceled, okay? You know, it, 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 it's you know, I I, I just read uh, Rose McGowan, that really creepy actress, is now trying to to cancel Oprah. So yeah, nobody, you know, it's terrible. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to general revelation, uh, and and I think that this is in line with Plato to Christ as well. Uh, we can we can learn some interesting things about general revelation and how it can actually help lead people to uh, the complete truth in Christianity through the story of Lewis, uh, C.S. Okay. Lewis, and and Tolkien, and you being a Lewis and Tolkien author. Uh, uh, scholar, 
Uh, I'm sure you can help us to understand uh, through Lewis's conversion and his, and him and Tolkien's idea and discussing of the myth becoming fact. Uh, Wait, how, yeah, yeah. How, should I tell that? Should I go ahead and tell that story? Or yeah, yeah tell us that story because I, I think that that helps us to understand uh, what you're talking about in your view of how general mm-hmm. revelation can help uh, lead us to uh, the complete Christian truth. All right. Now, probably most of your listeners know that Lewis was an atheist for a long time before he became a Christian. But what a lot of people don't know is he did not go directly from atheism to Christianity, like Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell or Chuck Colson or somebody like that. He was a theist, believed in God for a year or so before he was able to accept that Jesus was the Son of God. What was holding him back? One of the things holding him back is that, like me, English professor, loved mythology, Greek, Roman, Norse, Egyptian, studied all mythology, was a big fan of a guy named Sir James Fraser. He was the uh, Joseph Campbell of his day, even that name. Maybe you might even say the Jordan Peterson of his day. Somebody who loved to investigate archetypes. Look at all the different cultures and all the different religions and look at commonalities or similarities that overlap. And what uh, Fraser found is there's a certain archetypal character that he called it the corn god. Today, we just say the corn king. That across cultures, we have this odd figure who sort of is a son of a god or a god. He comes to earth. He often dies a violent death, but he rises again. And it's it's basically a seasonal myth of life, death, and rebirth as they go around and around and around. Of course, you know, in Houston, we don't have four seasons, but so you do. So you know how it works, right? And the names of these gods are Osiris in Egypt or Mithras in Persia or Adonis in Greece or Balder in, 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 in Scandinavia. And all in all, this it's a, it's a ubiquitous story or myth. And it sounds a lot like Jesus. And Lewis thought, well, Jesus is just a Hebrew version of this same archetype. What has that got to do with me that a rabbi, obscure rabbi died 2,000 years ago. What has it got to do with anything? One day, he was on the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford, called Addison's Walk, a beautiful tree-lane walk. I've walked it many times. I love it. And as they walked around and around, they began to discuss this issue. And J.R.R. Tolkien, very strong, committed Catholic, said, you know, Lewis, did you ever wonder, maybe the reason that Jesus sounds like a myth is because he's the myth that became fact, the myth that became true. And that revolution, and within about a week, Lewis was a believer. What's he getting at? Okay, look. Why is it that all these people all around the world have this story, have this yearning? The only thing that makes sense to me is that the creator who created all of us, all the races, all the nations, he put that yearning inside of us, for he has written eternity in the hearts of men, it says in Ecclesiastes, or the famous line from the opening chapter of the Confessions, O Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So it makes sense that if that yearning and desire has been put in all of us, that all people would show forth that yearning in their stories. But doesn't it make sense that when God himself initiates his salvation, he will do it in a way that not only fulfills, 
the Old Testament law and prophets, but fulfills all the highest yearnings of the pagan people. He is the corn king, but come true, because it happened in real time and space under Pontius Pilate. It really happened. In all the other cultures, it only retained a sort of mythic ritualistic value. Whether or not it happened is not even really that important. Mm-hmm. When God, again, see, doesn't it bother you, Aaron, that before the coming of Jesus, God only spoke to the Jews and ignored the other 99% of humanity? Well, he only gave special direct revelation to the Jews, but he didn't ignore the pagans. He spoke to them, like I said, through creation, conscience, reason, imagination. He spoke to them. And a lot of that finds its manifestation in these stories some of which are very bloody because they're seeing very dimly through a dirty mirror. But God is not silent. The rest of the nations reach for him. And Jesus is, again, not only the Jewish Messiah, but the Savior of the world. And guess what, Aaron? If Jesus came and died and rose again, and it spoke to the Jews, but it meant nothing to the pagans, then it would be like a foreign god had invaded us. But in fact, in Christ is the fulfillment of the best of Plato and Aristotle, of Homer and Virgil, of Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides. I mean, he is, and, and you know, you know, it, it, it's it's always the editor that comes up with, with the title. My subtitle is "How Platonic Thought Shaped the Christian Faith." Probably a better subtitle would have been "How the Christian Faith Fulfilled Plato," but that's not as catchy. But that's really more of what it's about. Uh, they're not, again, it's not like, oh, we stole from Plato, like some kind of plagiarism. It's mm-hmm. just Plato got a lot of things right, maybe more than anybody else. in the Now, Aristotle did too. Maybe I'll write a book called From Aristotle to Christ. Aristotle got a lot of things in the realm of ethics dead on right, so mm-hmm. that you know, uh, when 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 uh, uh, C.S. Lewis writes Mere Christianity and book three is about ethics— Half the time, he's just quoting Aristotle because Aristotle got it right. And he does not, he believes in the Bible, but it's like Aristotle got it right. So let's tell it, and then we'll, then we'll transcend it to the higher virtues of faith, hope, and love. We call mm-hmm. virtues. Yeah, excellent, excellent. That's so interesting. And yeah, and I just think that uh, that, the, that idea and shared through the illustration of Lewis's story and conversion uh, just really helps to, at least for me, it really helps to illuminate that idea of how general revelation can then fit into uh and 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 like i said before illuminate uh our understanding of christian theology and um and 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 so on uh share with us a little bit about how uh plato influenced uh or as the subtitle says shaped uh christian faith particularly in some of uh christianity's major theologians um, I know you, you can't give a detailed analysis oh, well, here. That's what the book is for. All, but what are just some of the, the, the highlights? Yeah. What are some of the headline versions yeah. of his Augustine, influence? Augustine is just brilliant because what he realized was the forms of Plato exist, but they're in the mind of God. And that's just boom. So Augustine is, is doing that same kind of moving and moving closer to God. But of course, he understands. See, the phrase, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, the beatific vision. Throughout mm-hmm. the ages, what you were seeking is the blessed vision of the Trinity. That phrase comes out of Plato. Now, it's 
Plato is trying to contemplate an impersonal form of the good, but it's the same growth. The other thing that uh, Plato talked about and Augustine talks about it is the idea of the good, the true, and the beautiful. These are the eternal things. Goodness with a capital G, beauty with a capital B, truth with a capital T. We are moving towards those, and all of them are a kind of balance, right? They're a kind of harmony, and they go together. You can't just throw one out. You need them all. Now, when it comes to Augustine, the man, not just the scholar, Plato played a very important role in his salvation. He, at first, was influenced by the Neoplatonists, like, like, like uh, Plotinus and Porphyry and people like that. And this is what he says in Book 7, I think, of the Confessions. Amazing. From the books of the Neoplatonists, I learned that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the One was God. He actually learned some real truths about the Logos, about the Word, and how it transcends. But only in the Bible, in the Gospel of John, did I read, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So he he was able to go so far. I mean, he actually made, he didn't go, he wasn't a blank slate becoming a Christian. He already understood many things, but he needed to go the extra step. And so there is that step-by-step progression. When you read Dante's Divine Comedy, it is a journey towards the beatific vision. It is a journey into greater and greater light. It's like the philosopher leaving Plato's cave and moving into the light of the sun. And we're moving there. And others, a lot of the Eastern fathers said, if you're going to do theology, you have to not only be smart, you have to be pure. I mean, you, you have to actually wrestle with these things and seek a kind of purity and goodness that's almost like the Platonic philosopher. Uh, you, you, you get a, a, a famous guy named Boethius who's become more and more popular. Boethius often used allegorical stories from Greek mythology to illustrate Christian truths. And he too is on a, a ladder. You know, the original title of my book was From Plato to Christ, Ascending the Rising Path. And that's what it's about. It's about moving towards greater and greater beauty. Now, of course, C.S. Lewis is the greatest Christian Platonist of the 20th. He gets his own chapter all by himself because he, if you ever read The Last Battle, that's the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. Last Battle, Narnia is destroyed and they go to Aslan's country. But when they get to Aslan's country, they see that Narnia is still there. But it's a more perfect Narnia and a more perfect one. And the professor says, it's all in Plato. It's all in Plato. What do they teach these children? One of the things that Lewis helped us to learn, N.T. Wright has helped us as well, is to understand that, again, heaven is more real than the earth, right? That heaven is real substance. You know, again, so many Christians think that heaven is floating around on clouds. We're going to be living in a new heaven and earth. It's going to be physical. Now, physical in a way we can't understand, but what is the difference between this body, this body, and the resurrection body? It's the difference between the hard, dry acorn that you bury in the ground and the oak that comes out of it. Read 1 Corinthians 15. That's a real platonic chapter as well, as he tries to understand the nature of sort of greater and greater reality. Mm. 
interesting. There's a lot more that we could go into there. Oh, I know. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that we have the book, though. So, that, uh, like you said, there's a whole chapter on Lewis, and and man, I would love to be able to just dig into these ideas and Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll have you back to uh, just talk yeah, about Lewis and back. Tolkin. That would that would be a lot of fun. It's good stuff. Before we go, let's just talk about um, the practical impact that this book can have on somebody's life. And I think you you already touched on it with this idea of, and I know this is how you close the book uh, with this idea of ascending the rising path. Right. How do how does Plato inspire inspire you, and how do you hope that acquainting readers with Plato better through this book? Uh, inspires them to ascend that rising path. Okay, I want them to follow the Socratic mandate of know thyself, but not the way we do it today. Know thyself should be when David says, search me, O Lord, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path of right. So real Socratic self-knowledge is about, it's not about like I'm the greatest guy. It's about looking at yourself and trying to move away from error and darkness and all of these things. But too often today, even Christians, what they practice is introspection. That means navel gazing where you look in and you look and you look so you can determine exactly what your parents and preachers did wrong so that you're screwed up. Now, there are some people who have been injured by a bad father or a bad preacher, okay? But we want to extend that to everyone nowadays. It's somebody, it's the man or whatever. So we think we're analyzing ourselves, but we're trying to find excuses so we can feel like victims. Lewis and Plato are trying to say to us, no, you need to step outside and look at yourself and you need to measure yourself, not against your neighbor, but measure yourself against Christ right? Uh, inculcating the mind of Christ. And I think Plato makes us question and answer and wrestle and move forward. Now, some, some people will use it as a way to, to win arguments, and that's not any good. That's not what it's about. It's about searching and making sure you are seeking after goodness, truth, and beauty, and not after shifting shadows. And I tell you, in this world of, of, of social media, that's more important than it has ever been. There are a lot of people who live their lives in Plato's cave right now. A contemporary reference in The Matrix, right? Mm. Which is, in some ways, Plato's Republic, the allegory of the cave after it goes wacko. But I mean, the, the basic metaphor is we think this is reality, but it's not. A good example of that, we think that we're right about everything. The most enlightened, uh, open-minded people of all, and everybody else before us are all you know, racist, sexist, homophobic, everything else. Right? We, we have no sense of stepping outside of ourselves and judging ourselves by a standard that's higher than yesterday. Okay, So what I'm telling you is we need Plato to get Christians back on track, not only because of his ideas, but because of his discipline. Um, and uh, they, they, they are disciplined, you know, uh, amazing stuff. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, we have so much more that we could go into, but uh, we're about out of time for today. Before we go, can you tell people how to connect with you if they want to follow your work? And uh, The real best and- way, because nobody's doing these, these really good pages anymore, is just go to Amazon.com, type in Lewis Marcos, that's M-A-R-K-O-S, and my Amazon author page has all of my uh, – books and, and biography and stuff. And also go to YouTube and type in Lewis Marcos, M-E-R-K-O-S. And my YouTube channel 
has a whole bunch of, of, of free videos on there that I've done. And actually, just recently, I put up, uh, because last year, because we had to be hybrid, I ended up having to record a lot of my classes. So they're unedited. You have to put up with stuff. But I put up a lot of my stuff on, on Lewis and Tolkien that people might be interested in. But there's other stuff that's more polished, if you will, all sorts mm-hmm. of things there. Uh, but Amazon, it's, all, all my books are there. Excellent. All right. Well, all of that is going to be linked in the show notes for you guys who are interested in going to see more of uh, Lewis's work, uh, whether that be on YouTube, the books, uh, and this book as well. I'll have all that linked in the show notes. So make sure you follow through there so that you can uh, get the book, follow him on YouTube, and so on. But uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. This was a really great conversation. I enjoyed it, uh, learned a lot from it, and uh, can't wait to learn even more as I continue on in the book. So thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Great conversation. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast.